Lovely to see you all on such a beautiful morning. As I've said in previous weeks, thank you for your patience and cooperation at the moment, both in the, the last few weeks and today with a different arrangement. Thank you so much for bearing with us as we try to adjust and make the most of this. If you were here last week, you'll remember that we tightened things up a bit with regard to mingling, both uh, in the building and then outside the building afterwards. But since we do have a bit more space this week, when the service is over, you can feel free, of course, to say hello to the people around you. Certainly, you don't, don't feel you have to be silent. All we'd ask is that when you do get up to go, that you head on out, and especially uh, at the front of the building, don't just gather in groups afterwards. If you need to speak to an elder, by all means, catch one of us at the end, please do. And if you're a church member and you would be willing to help with ushering or cleaning in the weeks to come, do let us know. And thank you to those who've cleaned in between, they're probably gone now, uh, cleaned in between this morning. If you think you could help with that, uh, do let us know. Some of you already have. And then just uh, something to think about with regard to the empty seats and the space that we have now. Let's see that empty space as an opportunity for us. We have plenty of space for new people, so let's pray for that, and let's invite others when we have the chance to do that, knowing they will have uh, room to sit when they come. The only other thing I need to mention is that we're back again this evening at 6 p.m., continuing to look at Matthew's Gospel, and I hope that you can join us for that. This morning we're going to begin our time of worship with a prayer taken from the Psalms, a prayer that God gave us to pray back to Him. It's a prayer for deliverance, and if you'll stand with me, we'll pray these words together from Psalm 31. In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. Since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead me and guide me. 
Keep me free from the trap that is set for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Deliver me, Lord, my faithful God. Amen. Psalm 31 is a desperate prayer for salvation, and our first song tells us how God answered that prayer.
Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that in the face of our desperate need, you did come running. Just like the father we read about in the story of the prodigal son, you ran to meet us. We thank you that in the person of Jesus Christ, you came from the throne of endless glory to a cradle in the dirt. We praise you that in your great love and humility, you did not despise even the cross. As we think about these things, we're so glad to belong to you. We're glad to run to you again for refuge today. We're so glad you are our strong fortress, our faithful God. We thank you for your care for each one of us. We thank you particularly this morning for the good news John and Carol Whitehouse had this week. That Carol's scan is clear. We pray to you for those who have faced deep sorrow this week. We think especially of Margaret Beach and her family with the loss of Margaret's husband, David. We thank you, Father, that in both our sorrows and our joys, you are the one we need. You have all we need. Your love and compassion are deep enough for every situation in our lives. And we look to you again this morning. Will you speak to us? Will you teach us? Will you touch us as only you can with your healing, reviving hand? Will you remind us how blessed we are to know you and to have life through your Son, Jesus? Amen. We're going to have a reading now where Jesus shows just the kind of king that he is. The reading is taken from Matthew chapter 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your com king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee.
We know by looking at the world around us, and we know from history that so many rulers in this world are harsh and proud. But Jesus Christ showed himself to be gentle and humble. And our next song is a song of thanks that we can serve a king like this, King of Kings. are going to Sunday school are going to be moving next door.
We get the leaders we deserve. You've probably heard that statement. And this morning we're going to see just how true that statement can be. In fact, as we read through this passage this morning, we might want to add to that saying. If people get the leaders they deserve, we might want to add that leaders get the people they deserve. But we're also going to see it doesn't have to be that way. In God's great mercy, there is another way. We can have a leader we don't deserve. And that leader is willing to love and to lead a people he doesn't deserve. But first, let's remember where we are in the book of Judges. Last week, we uh, finished the account of Gideon. We read about the end of Gideon's life. And honestly, it wasn't great. The verdict on Gideon's life has to be that God accomplished something great through Gideon. That's true. He used Gideon to deliver Israel from the Midianites. But after that great deliverance, in the latter part of Gideon's life, his behavior did a lot of damage in Israel. He made an ephod. We don't know exactly what that was, but whatever it was, and whatever Gideon intended when he made that thing, what actually happened was it became an object of false worship in Israel. God's deliverer ended up encouraging idol worship among God's people. Gideon saved Israel from an invading army from the outside, but then he contributed to the internal disease in Israel. He also refused to be called Israel's king, but then he went ahead and behaved like the king. He collected gold from the people just like a king would, and he had many wives, his own harem, just like a Canaanite king. He even called one of his sons Abimelech, which means my father is king. And in the passage we're going to look at this morning, Abimelech is the one who's in the spotlight. So it's worth remembering what we learned about him last week at the end of Judges chapter 8. Abimelech's mother was not actually one of Gideon's wives. She was a concubine. That essentially means she performed the duties of a wife without being given official recognition as a wife. And later on, we will find out why that was. She was a slave. And a man who thinks of himself as a king is not going to stoop to marry a slave. Gideon wouldn't marry her, but he was happy doing other things with her. And the result was a son, Abimelech. Because Gideon is his father, Abimelech has one foot in Gideon's family in Ophrah. But because his mother was not quite part of Gideon's family, Abimelech also has one foot in her family situation in a place called Shechem. And that lays the foundation for the mess we're about to see. So we'll turn to Judges chapter 9, if you haven't already turned there. And we're going to read the story of the Bramble King. And just to remind you, the name Jerob Beal is another name for Gideon. Judges chapter 9. 
Abimelech, son of Jerubbaal, went to his mother's brothers in Shechem and said to them and to all his mother's clan, ask all the citizens of Shechem, which is better for you? To have all 70 of Jerubbaal's sons rule over you or just one man? Remember, I am your flesh and blood. When the brothers repeated all this to the citizens of Shechem, they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is related to us. They gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal Berith, and Abimelech used it to hire reckless scoundrels who became his followers. He went to his father's home in Ophrah, and on one stone murdered his 70 brothers, the sons of Jerubbaal. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbaal, escaped by hiding. Then all the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar in Shechem to crown Abimelech king. When Jotham was told about this, he climbed up on the top of Mount Gerizim and shouted to them, Listen to me, citizens of Shechem, so that God may listen to you. One day, the trees went out to anoint a king for themselves. They said to the olive tree, be our king. But the olive tree answered, should I give up my oil, by which both gods and humans are honored, to hold sway over the trees? Next, the trees said to the fig tree, come and be our king. But the fig tree replied, should I give up my fruit, so good and sweet, to hold sway over the trees? Then the trees said to the vine, come and be our king. But the vine answered, should I give up my wine, which cheers both gods and humans to hold sway over the trees? Finally, all the trees said to the thorn bush, come and be our king. The thorn bush said to the trees, if you really want to anoint me king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, then let fire come out of the thorn bush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. Have you acted honorably and in good faith by making Abimelech king? Have you been fair to Jerubbaal and his family? Have you treated him as he deserves? Remember that my father fought for you and risked his life to rescue you from the hand of Midian. But today... You have revolted against my father's family. You have murdered his 70 sons on a single stone and have made Abimelech, the son of his female slave, king over the citizens of Shechem because he is related to you. So, have you acted honorably and in good faith towards Jerubbaal and his family today? If you have, may Abimelech be your joy and may you be his too. But if you have not, let fire come out from Abimelech and consume you, the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from you, the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo, and consume Abimelech. Then Jotham fled, escaping to Beer. And he lived there because he was afraid of his brother Abimelech. After Abimelech had governed Israel for three years, God stirred up animosity between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem so that they acted treacherously against Abimelech. God did this in order that the crime against Jerubbaal's 70 sons, the shedding of their blood, might be avenged on their brother Abimelech and 
on the citizens of Shechem who had helped him murder his brothers. In opposition to him, these citizens of Shechem set men on the hilltops to ambush and rob everyone who passed by. And this was reported to Abimelech. Now, Gal, son of Ebed, moved with his clan into Shechem, and its citizens put their confidence in him. After they had gone out into the fields and gathered the grapes and trodden them, they held a festival in the temple of their god. While they were eating and drinking, they cursed Abimelech. Then Gal, son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech? And why should we Shechemites be subject to him? Isn't he Jeroboam's son? And isn't Zebul his deputy? Serve the family of Hamor, Shechem's father. Why should we serve Abimelech? If only this people were under my command, then I would get rid of him. I would say to Abimelech, Call out your whole army. When Zebul, the governor of the city, heard what Gal, son of Ebed, said, he was very angry. Undercover, he sent messengers to Abimelech, saying, Gal, son of Ebed, and his clan have come to Shechem and are stirring up the city against you. Now then, during the night, you and your men should come and lie in wait in the fields. In the morning, at sunrise, advance against the city. When Gal and his men come out against you, seize the opportunity to attack them. So Abimelech and all his troops set out by night and took up concealed positions near Shechem in four companies. Now Gal, son of Ebed, had gone out and was standing at the entrance of the city gate just as Abimelech and his troops came out from their hiding place. When Gal saw them, he said to Zebul, Look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. Zebul replied, You mistake the shadows of the mountains for men. But Gal spoke up again, look, people are coming down from the central hill, and a company is coming from the direction of the diviner's tree. Then Zebul said to him, where is your big talk now? You who said, who is Abimelech that we should be subject to him? Aren't these the men you ridiculed? Go out and fight them. So Gal led out the citizens of Shechem and fought Abimelech. Abimelech chased him all the way to the entrance of the gate, and many were killed as they fled. Then Abimelech stayed in Aruma, and Zebul drove Gal and his clan out of Shechem. The next day, the people of Shechem went out to the fields, and this was reported to Abimelech. So he took his men, divided them into three companies, and set an ambush in the fields. When he saw the people coming out of the city, he rose to attack them. Abimelech and the companies with him for, rushed forward to a position at the entrance of the city gate. Then two companies attacked those in the fields and struck them down. All that day, Abimelech pressed his attack against the city until he had captured it and killed its people. Then he destroyed the city and scattered salt over it. On hearing this, the citizens in the tower of Shechem went into the stronghold of the temple of El Barith. When Abimelech heard that they had assembled there, he and all his men went up Mount Zalman. He took an axe and cut off some branches which he lifted to his shoulders. He ordered the men with him, Quick, do what you have seen me do. So all the men cut branches and followed Abimelech. They piled them against the stronghold and set it on fire with the people still inside. So all the people in the tower of Shechem, about a thousand men and women, also died. Next, 
Abimelech went to Thebes and besieged it and captured it. Inside the city, however, was a strong tower to which all the men and women, all the people of the city had fled. They had locked themselves in and climbed up on the tower roof. Abimelech went to the tower and attacked it, but as he approached the entrance to the tower to set it on fire, a woman dropped an upper millstone on his head and cracked his skull. Hurriedly, he called to his armor bearer, draw your sword and kill me so that they can't say a woman killed him. So the servant ran him through and he died. When the Israelites saw that Abimelech was dead, they went home. Thus, God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also made the people of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. The curse of Jotham, son of Jerubbaal, came on them. This is God's word. And as we read this, maybe the question in our minds is, who on earth is the hero in all of this? Who are we supposed to be supporting here? Everybody involved is godless and thoroughly unlikable. They're all villains. Except maybe for Gideon's son, Jotham. But all he does is pop up to tell a strange little story. And then he disappears again. In terms of the main players here, they're all rotten. That's true. And in the first half of this passage, we see kingdom built on betrayal, dishonor, and unholy ambition. And to understand this, we need to remember what we noticed earlier. Abimelech has a foot in two different situations. On one hand, Gideon was his father, and it seems Abimelech may have grown up with Gideon's family in Ophrah. We know Gideon lived like a king, so Abimelech grew up in an atmosphere of power and ambition. He even had that grand name, my father is king. But on the other hand, Abimelech wasn't quite in. He was a son, not of a wife, but of a concubine. And that put Abimelech way down the pecking order. He ranked below Gideon's other sons. And as we've seen, there are 70 of them. So what is this ambitious, frustrated young man going to do? He knows he's not going to inherit his father's kingdom. And so Abimelech decides to build his own. The beginning of Judges 9 tells us he goes to his mother's family in Shechem and he says to them in verse 2, Ask all the citizens of Shechem, which is better for you? To have all 70 of Jeroboam's sons rule over you, or just one man? Remember, I am your flesh and blood. So the situation is Gideon is dead, and the expectation is that Gideon's sons are now going to rule Israel. And Abimelech says to his mother's clan, are you happy with that? Do you want to pay taxes to these guys over in Ophrah? Or would you like to have me in charge, your own flesh and blood? 
There's no acknowledgement from Abimelech that they're all Israelites. Abimelech is trying to tap into local loyalties. He's playing one set of Israelites off against another. And the people of Shechem go for it in verse 3. When the brothers, that's his brothers in Shechem, when they repeated all this to the citizens of Shechem, they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is related to us. They gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal Berith. And Abimelech used it to hire reckless scoundrels who became his followers. He went to his father's home in Ophrah and on one stone murdered his 70 brothers, the sons of Jeroboam. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, escaped by hiding. Then all the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar in Shechem to crown Abimelech king. This is brutal. It's not a battle. The point of telling us they were all killed on one stone is to let us know they were all lined up and killed systematically, one at a time. This was a long and bloody day's work. As one dead brother is dragged off the stone, the next living brother is forced down onto the stone. Until all 70 are dead. And then, probably after washing his hands, Abimelech swans over to Shechem in time for his coronation. No doubt a nice ceremony has been planned. It's all going to be done decently and in order. As if this is all honorable and above board. But apparently Abimelech couldn't count too well because he only executed 69 of Gideon's sons. The youngest one, Jotham, got away and he must have had incredible courage for a young boy and a very big voice for a young boy because just as the coronation is about to take place in Shechem, Jotham appears on the hill overlooking the scene and he shouts out a very bold challenge for everybody to hear. And scientists have actually tested the acoustics of this particular place. And they are amazing. Jotham has picked the ideal spot to be heard by everyone. Just as Abimelech is about to receive his crown, Jotham spoils the moment by calling him a bramble king. Or if we follow the translation in the NIV, a thornbush king. The gist of Jotham's little story is that the trees were looking for a king and none of the decent trees were willing to take on the job. The olive tree, the fig tree, and the vine, they all have valuable things to give. Oil, fruit, and wine. But those trees all say no. So finally, the trees turn to the scraggly little thorn bush, the bramble. He has no kingly qualities at all. But he does have a king-sized opinion of himself. If you look in verse 15. The thorn bush said to the trees, If you really want to anoint me king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, then let fire come out of the thorn bush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. 
Of course, a thorn bush can't offer any true refuge or shade. But this thorn bush isn't daunted by that detail. He says, if you won't lie down at my feet, I will consume the cedars of Lebanon. They were considered the most tall and majestic of all the trees. But the thorn bush is confident he can bring them down. That's Jotham's story. And he immediately explains what he means by the story. He says, you Shechemites went looking for a king and you've ended up with a worthless one. Abimelech is the bramble king. You will find no refuge in him. And Jotham also holds the Shechemites guilty for killing Gideon's family. Remember, they paid Abimelech to hire his squad of reckless scoundrels. And Jotham challenges the Shechemites. Have you acted honorably? Have you done this in good faith? If you have, then all the best to you. But if you haven't acted honorably, verse 20, then let fire come out from Abimelech and consume you, the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from you, the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo, and consume Abimelech. Then Jotham fled, escaping to Beer. And he lived there because he was afraid of his brother Abimelech. When we read that Jotham escaped to Beer, that's not another way of saying he hit the bottle. It's a place he goes to hide. And we never hear from him again. But Jotham's challenge hangs in the air here. His challenge that a kingdom built on betrayal, dishonor, and unholy ambition is not going to thrive in the long run. It will tear itself apart. And the writer of Judges immediately tells us Jotham is right. Look at verse 22. After Abimelech had governed Israel for three years, God stirred up animosity between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem so that they acted treacherously against Abimelech. God did this in order that the crime against Jeroboam's 70 sons, the shedding of their blood, might be avenged on their brother Abimelech and on the citizens of Shechem, who had helped him murder his brothers. Those words are the key to understanding this passage. We said earlier, there are no heroes here. They're all godless. Abimelech is a heartless little tyrant. And the Shechemites are totally dishonorable themselves. They paid this guy to kill his brothers. And what these verses tell us is that in the end, there will be no winners among these evil people. God will use them against each other. Under his sovereign authority, evil will destroy evil. Where evil is concerned, there is never any true winner. In the end, evil turns on itself. And the Bible tells us what we see here on a small scale is true on a worldwide scale as well. 
At the end of human history, this truth will show itself clearly. The last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, pictures Satan's chief henchman as a beast. And in alliance with that beast, Revelation pictures a great prostitute. She represents the God-defying kingdoms of this world. And in a vision, the Apostle John is shown these two evil figures. As he looks, he sees the great prostitute riding on the beast's back. They're an evil alliance. They join forces, the powers of Satan and the powers of sinful humanity, together against God. But as John continues to watch in his vision, he tells us the beast and his attendants hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin, John says, and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose. Both Satan and sinful humanity are intent on building a kingdom for themselves. A kingdom where God doesn't rule. And in the short term, they might seem to be succeeding. But in the long run, those who seek their own kingdom will tear each other apart. God will use evil against itself. Judges chapter 9 is a miniature illustration of that large-scale reality. In the first half of the passage, we've seen Abimelech and the Shechemites form their own little evil alliance. Just like the beast and the prostitute in Revelation. We've seen them pursue a kingdom that's built on betrayal, dishonor, and unholy ambition. Now in the second half of the passage, we see that under God's sovereign hand, that evil kingdom is a kingdom that destroys itself. In verse 23, the writer of Judges has told us, after three years of Abimelech's rule, God stirred up animosity between him and the Shechemites. And that animosity first begins to show itself as the Shechemites start doing things behind Abimelech's back. It seems they start up some kind of a racket where they're robbing the traffic that goes by through the hills. They're depriving Abimelech of profit and keeping it for themselves. Abimelech hears about this, and so things are already starting to go sour. And then... A new face appears in Shechem. Or maybe he's an old face who's reappeared. Either way, Gal, son of Ebed, moves into Shechem with his clan. And verse 26 says the Shechemites put their confidence in him. The only reason for that seems to be that Gal is full of big talk about himself. Just like Abimelech. Then at a drunken party in Baal's temple, Gal starts mouthing off. He starts questioning Abimelech's right to rule over Shechem. 
He criticizes Abimelech's deputy, a man called Zebul. And Gal claims that he would make a much better king of Shechem. Then in verse 29, he says, If only this people were under my command, then I would get rid of him. I would say to Abimelech, call out your whole army. If that kind of bluster sounds a bit familiar, that's because Abimelech said the same kind of stuff to the Shechemites when he wanted to be king. In any case, the next morning when Gal sobers up, he gets what he asked for. Because in the night, Zebul has sent word to Abimelech, who obviously is not living in Shechem at this point, but he's close enough to be able to get there within a few hours. And by the time Gal is having his morning coffee and cornflakes at the city gate, he looks up to see what seems to be an army in the distance. Verse 36. When Gal saw them, he said to Zebul, Look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. Zebul replied, You mistake the shadows of the mountains for men. But Gal spoke up again, Look, people are coming down from the central hill, and a company is coming from the direction of the diviner's tree. Then Zebul said to him, Where is your big talk now? You who said, Who is Abimelech that we should be subject to him? Aren't these the men you ridiculed? Go out and fight them. So Gal led out the citizens of Shechem and fought Abimelech. Abimelech chased him all the way to the entrance of the gate, and many were killed as they fled. Then Abimelech stayed in Arumah, and Zebul drove Gal and his clan out of Shechem. Arumah was about five miles from Shechem, so it seems Gideon isn't finished yet. He stays nearby. The Shechemites have been punished. Gal and his clan have been kicked out. You might think Abimelech would be content with that. But he's not. The next day he comes back and he slaughters the people of Shechem. First in the city itself. And then when the survivors withdraw to a stronghold that's on higher ground behind the city, Abimelech and his men pile wood round the stronghold. They set it on fire, and the thousand people inside are burned to death. The Shechemites chose a worthless king for themselves, a bramble king, and he has literally consumed them. But there's one more twist in this tale. It began with a stone, and it ends with a stone. Remember, at Ophrah, Abimelech killed his brothers on one stone. And now Abimelech himself is killed by one stone. Near Shechem, there's another town called Thebes. Probably the people of Thebes were in league with the Shechemites. Maybe they'd been involved with the Shechemites in robbing the traffic that was going by. Whatever the reason is, Abimelech is mad with the people of Thebes as well. And since burning the place down has worked so well in Shechem, he decides to do it again. Only this time, using the same plan, as Abimelech runs forward to light the fire, a woman up on the roof of the stronghold 
drops a millstone, and it crushes Abimelech's head. And yes, in order to save his embarrassment, Abimelech's armor-bearer finishes him off with his sword. But he'd have been dead within minutes anyway. The man who killed his brothers on one stone has been killed by one stone. The writer of Judges points that out for us to show how Abimelech's evil has rebounded on him. Literally rebounded on his own head. Just as the evil of the Shechemites rebounded on them. Both sides have got what they deserved. The Shechemites chose an evil king. They funded his killing spree. And he turned round and consumed them with fire. Abimelech slaughtered his brothers so he could lead a disloyal, fickle people, and he ended up crushed. The final verses of this passage make sure we get the point of all this. Verse 56. Thus, God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also made the people of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. The curse of Jotham, son of Jerubbaal, came on them. In this passage, there are no heroes. There are no good guys. That is not why this incident is recorded in Scripture. It's here to give us a historical illustration of the truth that a kingdom built on betrayal, dishonor, and unholy ambition is a kingdom that destroys itself. And you and I need to see this truth because every day we are surrounded by a kingdom built on betrayal, dishonor, and unholy ambition. We live in a world where loyalty and faithfulness seem to be naive and out of date. Isn't that the whole point of TV shows like Love Island? And aren't those kind of shows just a reflection of what our society admires? We live in a world where greed and unholy ambition rule. Where betraying other people to get ahead seems the reasonable thing to do. And where dishonor is so often rewarded with riches and fame. And when you and I live every day in that kind of an atmosphere, it's so easy just to go along with it. It seems to work, doesn't it? It seems to be working for lots of people. Standing against it seems to be futile. Why even bother? What's the point in living differently? But the Bible wants you and me to see that kind of kingdom will consume itself in the end. And those who are part of it will burn in the end. The Bible wants us to see the kingdom that's all around us is a kingdom of darkness. Darkness. 
It's Satan's kingdom. He is the ultimate bramble king. He builds his kingdom on betrayal, dishonor, and unholy ambition. He provides no true refuge for those who follow him. Those who look to him for refuge only find thorns and fire. Whatever Satan might promise, all that he can give adds up to thorns and fire in the end. And in the end, Satan's head is going to be crushed, just like Abimelech. The New Testament uses those exact words to describe Satan's destiny. And the one who will crush him is Jesus Christ. The New Testament calls Jesus the stone who crushes. But here's the good news. The same Jesus who crushes evil is also the only savior from evil. The Bible says on the cross, Jesus allowed himself to be crushed so we could be saved. He was crushed in our place for our sins. He even took on his head a crown of thorns so we could escape the thorns we deserve. You and I do not deserve a kind and faithful king like Jesus. And he doesn't deserve a selfish and unfaithful people like us. But in God's great mercy, we can have Jesus as our king. We can enjoy the true refuge and shelter that he provides. When we stop clinging to our sin, when we cling to Jesus instead, then we're saved from Satan, the ruler that we deserve. Now we belong to a different kingdom, the kingdom of light. And in that kingdom, we enjoy a love we don't deserve. In Jesus, we find mercy, we find grace, we find rest for our souls. So as we bring this to a close, let's thank God we're not condemned to live the kind of life described in Judges chapter 9. A life that's full of rivalry and unfaithfulness. A life that ends with thorns and fire. When we turn to Jesus, we step out of the kingdom of death and destruction. We begin to live in the kingdom of life and light. And we can live in the light with confidence. We can be confident as we commit to faithfulness and holiness. Because we are part of the only kingdom that will last. Every other kingdom will destroy itself. No matter how strong it seems to be right now. Our last song helps us to celebrate our king and his kingdom. It reminds us Jesus is king forevermore.
lifted high, the sinless man, he crucified the spotless lamb, buried by the sons of man, and he was rescued by the Father's hand. as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
the throne of 